Welcome to the Covenant People's Ministry. Jesus once told Satan that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. We invite you to study the scriptures with us to learn about the words of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Our pastor is Mr. Jeremy Visser from Brooks, Georgia. You can contact us with your questions and comments at covenantpeoplesministry.org or simply write to Covenant People's Ministry, Post Office Box 256, Brooks, Georgia 30205. If you desire, you can also follow us on YouTube and Twitter. We would like to hear from you, and we pray in the name of Jesus Christ that His will will continue to reign upon us all. Once again, welcome to the Covenant People's Ministry, and here is Pastor Visser with our next Bible study. Today, we're going to be taking a look at the Syriac Infancy Gospel. And if you've been staying with me on this particular series, you know that this book, also known as the Arabic Infancy Gospel, is comprised of technically three sections in total. The very beginning of the Syriac Infancy Gospel pertains to the birth of Jesus Christ. And as such, it is mostly based on the writings of James, those uncanonized writings of the brother of Yahshua, also known as the Proto-Evangelion. But the middle part of this book, the Syriac Infancy Gospel, is mostly compiled by the author from the local traditions of the time. And this section of the Syriac Infancy Gospel mostly pertains to Jesus Christ and his parents flight into Egypt. Now, the third and final part of the book, which we find ourselves moving into today, mostly deals with Jesus' miracles as a boy. And this section of the first book of infancy is more based on Thomas's gospel of the infancy of Yahshua. And that, my friends, is a good thing. Because as I said, it is mostly the middle section of this book pertaining to the flight in Egypt that is based on not so much local traditions as it is local superstitions. And so, we are finally moving away from that superstitious part of this book and moving on to more factual books. In fact, actually, narratives that are transcribed elsewhere. And so it stands. I personally have preached Thomas's Gospel of the Infancy of Yahshua about four or five years ago. But I bring that up because Infancy 2, as a book, appears after Infancy 1, what we're covering right now, the Syriac Infancy Gospel. But the latter half of this book is mostly based on the writings of Thomas. And I'm going to prove that to you, if you bear with me. And so... Without further ado, let's pick it back up in chapter 15 in the Syriac Infancy Gospel. We read, And when the Lord Jesus was seven years of age, he was, on a certain day, with other boys, his companions, about the same age. So notice, already we have changed from Yahshua being no more than three to being seven years old at the beginning of chapter 15. 
And seven, according to E.W. Bullinger's Biblical Numerics, is the number of completeness or perfection, both physically and spiritually. And so in beginning this narrative of Yahshua dealing with the Galami, understand that Yahshua, according to this text and biblical numerics, was complete, perfected, both physically and spiritually. And thus, there was a day when he was seven years old, he would play with companions, other boys that were around about his age. Now we saw that in the segment before this where two of the three brothers of Yahshua come back from playing, and Judas happens to be there, around about three years old. And he sucker punches Yahshua on the right-hand side. Now, according to this book, where Judas punched him as a youth, that was where the Jews came along much later and struck him and pierced his side with a spear. For example, chapter 14, verse 10. That same side on the which Judas struck him, the Jews pierced with a spear. I bring that up because I want you to understand that Yahshua at this point was for all intents and purposes a normal young boy. And at seven years old, he was out playing with all of his kinsfolk, those neighbors round about that lived with him in this city of Bethlehem. Next verse. Who, when they were at play made clay into several shapes, namely, asses, oxen, birds, and other figures. So let me point out to you, that right here in verse 2, when we come across this word shapes, it means galami. And this, my friend, is where the old tradition of the golem comes from. That is, a man made of clay, yet devoid of any soul. Remember that as we continue on, because I've already covered this, and I'm about to take you to infancy too, to show you the similarities. That is, that the author of infancy one gleaned from infancy two, and basically took Thomas's gospel and added to it. Or, in the case of the dye shop, took what was once known as a fragment and added upon it, completed the story, if you will. So, the story thus far is quite simple. Yahshua is seven years old. And he was playing with numerous children that were all about the same age. Notice the text says, his companions. Thus they also were Israelites. And they were making clay figures. Shanks, galami if you will. Namely, in the form or the visage of jackasses, oxen, birds, and other figurines. So, remember that. Because what Yahshua is about to do is once again prove that he holds the keys of life and death. And, in short, prove that he is God. Next verse. Each boasting of his work and endeavoring to exceed the rest. Then the Lord Jesus said to the boys, I will command these figures which I have made to walk. So it's a very simple analogy, and this is normal behavior for the Israelites of Yahshua's time, because they did not have Walmarts to go to. Therefore, they had to amuse themselves. Thus, one of the ways that Hebrew boys would amuse themselves is to go down by the riverside, to take mud and build sandcastles. 
Also, to make clay figurines. Clay being a very important word because after all, it was Yahweh God who formed Ahadam or Adam from the Ahadama or the Adama, the red soil of the earth. What is clay but red mud? So, bear that in mind. Verse 5. And immediately they moved. What moved? Yahshua's Galami. The figures that he made that were in the form of birds, oxen, and horses, and jackasses. When Yahshua said, I will command these figures that I have made to walk, verse 5 says, immediately they moved. As soon as Yahshua spoke it. As soon as he commanded it. Now, you and I realize that Yahshua's name is Emmanuel, God with us. That Jesus to Christ is none other than God in flesh form. And why it is in this latter era that is such a hard thing to teach when the Bible is replete with examples when Yahshua claimed to be God himself, well, that's beyond me. But for those of you who understand the deity of Yahshua, and don't try to denigrate him down to the level of just being a mere son of God, will not have a hard time grasping this story. Because it truly is no different than what we read about in Genesis chapter 2. That Yahweh God can form man of the dust of the earth. But there is one difference between these accounts. That is, here in chapter 15 in infancy 1 in Genesis 2, and that is this. Yahweh God breathed within Adam... And Adam became a living soul. Thus, a galami is none other than technically a zombie devoid of soul. And does that sound far-fetched, dear kinsfolk? Because it should not. Those that are devoid of the Holy Spirit are no different than the walking dead, scripturally. Thus, if Jesus the Christ were to make clay figures and command that they walk, that's an easy thing for him to do. However... They would be devoid of a soul. Because the text does not say that Yahshua did that. Thus, we're dealing with Galami. Soulless people. Or soulless animals. Perhaps this will make more sense later. Verse 6 says, He had also made the figures of birds and sparrows, which, when he commanded to fly, did fly. And when he commanded to stand still, did stand still. And, if he gave them meat and drink, they did eat and drink. Notice, that while your average listener will have a hard time grasping this, this really is not far removed from the canonized four Gospels, in the regard that whatsoever Yahshua spoke or commanded came to pass exactly as he spoke it. Exactly as he commanded it. Now we're dealing with a difficult subject matter because this does not appear within the canonized Bible per se. Now the act of creating from clay or Adama is most assuredly because we know we are created to be either a vessel of honor or a vessel of dishonor. So, Yeshua made figures of birds and sparrows. And he would command those figures to fly, and, well, they would fly. When he commanded them to come back, they would come back, they would obey Yahshua. But more than just obeying Yahshua, they showed life. When Yahshua put food down before these clay galami, they would eat. When at length, verse 7 says, the boys went away, 
and related these things to their parents, their father said unto them, Take heed, children, for the future of this company, for he, Jesus the Christ, is a sorcerer. Shun and avoid him, and from henceforth never play with him. <laughs> Quite interesting, is it not? Because there truly is no new thing under the sun. And while we come in and espouse the word of God verbatim, at least from the canonized Bible, we also oftentimes as pastors are accused of being sorcerers, devil worshippers, or taking the word of God too literal. And I've even been called a Puritan. Like, that's supposed to be offensive. But notice that when the boys went back and relayed to their parents, the father said, don't play with Yahshua anymore. You can't play with Jesus Christ because they were afraid of the unknown. And so it stands today. The Bible is replete with examples of laying on of hands, of miracles happening. And the only limit to our miracles, dear kinsfolk, is our faith. Our faith directly attributes that portion that is given to us. And thus, I bring this up because it is usually nine times out of ten the faithless who come in and say we must do something about Pastor Visser. We need to get him help. We need to get him locked up because after all, he believes in a book, not the television. He runs back. He tells them, my point is, is the fathers and the mothers should have said, surely this is the Son of God. If he's able to take clay pigeons and sparrows and make them fly, at bare minimum, they should have said, I want to see this for myself. But rather, when the Hebrew children return home, they relay everything that transpired by the riverside. And the fathers come in and forbid the children from playing with Yahshua because of their fear of the unknown. Remember that, extremely important. And you're going to see here in a moment from Thomas's infancy too that he teaches the same exact thing. When at length the boys went away and related these things to their parents, both their mother and their father, their fathers, who were the head of the household, said unto them, Take heed, children, for the future of his company, for he is a sorcerer. Now, naturally, the natural man could come in after the fact 30 years later and say, See, I told you so. After all, Yahshua was put to death as a rebel, was he not? Meaning that the world would come in and give the world what it desires. Remember, in John chapter 8, verse 44, He is a liar and the father of it. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own. There's a reason for that. Because, nine times out of ten, those men and women who move against you aren't quite so dangerous in the ideal that they believe differently than you. But what makes them dangerous is when they go out and suddenly start trying to prove themselves correct. You understand that point? If we have a tainted viewpoint, we're going to be looking for sorcerers everywhere we go. And that's my point with this. When Yahshua would come and give life to Lazarus, the Israelites would say, this is the Son of God. This is the Messiah. But the natural heathen would come in and say what? He's no different than a sorcerer. And so turn with me, if you happen to possess one, to the very first chapter of Infancy 2. This book is attributed to Doubting Thomas, the Apostle of Yahshua. And beginning in chapter 1, verse 2, we read, When the child Jesus was five years of age, 
and there had been a shower of rain, which was now over, Jesus was playing with other Hebrew boys by a running stream. And the water running over the bank stood in little lakes. But the water instantly became clear and useful again. We having smote them only by his word, they readily obeyed him. Pay close attention. Then he took from the bank of the stream some soft clay and formed out of it twelve sparrows. And there were other boys playing with him. But a certain Jew, seeing the things which he was doing, namely his forming clay into the figures of sparrows on the Sabbath day, went presently away and told his father Joseph and said, now before we get to what he said, notice, this text uses the terminology of Jew. And being Gnostic, it is corrupted even less. And I'm going to prove that to you when we get here in infancy 1, as we complete chapter 15, when we deal with the dye shop. Because at the end, the Jews saw this surprising miracle. Not necessarily Judeans. So notice that Yahshua's snitch was a Jew. So much so, that in beginning infancy 2, chapter 1, verse 2, Yahshua is differentiated out from the Jews by being considered a Hebrew. Right? Jesus was playing with other Hebrew boys, but yet it happened to be a certain Jew in verse 5 that saw the things that he was doing. So, there is a difference between a Heb and a Jew, just as there is a difference between an Israelite and a Judean. But more on that later. This certain Jew, seeing the things which Jesus Christ was doing, and namely, they were just forming clay figures into the form of sparrows and giving them life at least, having them fly away and come back, being able to feed them. And he runs and he tells Joseph, he runs to the stepfather of Yahshua in an attempt to frame deceit on Jesus the Christ. What does he say? Well, verse 6 in infancy 2, chapter 1, he says to Joseph, behold, thy boy is playing by the riverside and has taken clay, and formed it into twelve sparrows, and profaneth the Sabbath. Notice the hypocrisy of this certain Jew, because this is not very different than it would be when Yahshua was an adult. For there was one particular instance where Yahshua was walking and picked corn on the Sabbath, and the Jews would run and say, you violate the Sabbath. And of course Yahshua would have to respond Doing good on the Sabbath is no sin at all, to paraphrase. But understand this concept. This boy running to Joseph and snitching out one of his supposed fellow Israelite Hebrews was a bigger offense than anything Yahshua was doing. But he could not see his own hypocrisy. Therefore, he runs to Joseph. He says, your boy's playing by the riverside. He's taken clay. He's formed it into twelve sparrows. Twelve is the number of the disciples that Yahshua would call. Twelve is the number of the tribes of Israel that comprised the kingdom in the first two chapters of Revelation. Twelve is a number that denotes governmental perfection. But notice here in infancy too, there's a difference. Yahshua here is not seven years old. Rather, he's five. The number of grace. Perhaps that's a study for another day. But remember, verse 7 says, Then Joseph came to the place where he was. Stopping right there. 
Notice, Joseph did unlike the Hebrew boy's father. He actually goes, wants to see for himself, get a visual confirmation of the fact, before he comes in and judges a mess and says, don't play with Yahshua, because he's a sorcerer. What's my point with that? By what measure you judge, you will be judged in return. The father who said that and forbid his children from playing with Jesus Christ will be judged as a sorcerer. Obviously, because Yahshua taught it. But verse 7 says that Joseph at least had enough scruples and common sense to come to the place where Yahshua was. And what else? And when he saw him, he called to him and said, Why dost thou that which it is not lawful to do on the Sabbath day? Very simple question. This boy came to me and told me you were violating the Sabbath because after all, the Mosaic law says you're not supposed to labor on the Sabbath. To work. <laughs> Understand the difference between laboring and holding a job? Doesn't matter if you violate the seventh day Sabbath if you're sitting at a job because you're not laboring. You're not working. In order to fully take a rest from your labors and or work, you have to exert yourself first and foremost to violate the Sabbath. But so it stands. Joseph comes to the place where Jesus was. Where's that? By the side of a riverbank. Calls out to him and asks him a very simple question. Why are you supposedly violating the Sabbath day? Verse 8. Then, Jesus clapping together the palms of his hands, called to the sparrows and said to them, Go, fly away, and while ye live, remember me. So the sparrows fled away, making a noise. Now does that seem impossible to you, dear kinsfolk? I ask that because for the average person in the era, 2016, that seems impossible. But I ask you, why does it seem impossible? Because it's not straightforwardly told in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, the quote-unquote canon? Well, Matthew, Mark, and Luke at least, with perhaps the exception of John, don't even discuss Yahshua's childhood outside of him being lost and found within the temple of Jerusalem and lecturing the scribes and the Pharisees. My point is, is that our canonized Bible does not hardly even speak of these miracles, but these clay balami that we have dealt with already today from infancy one and two are not only found within those two books, but found in numerous apocryphal, pseudepigraphal, and Gnostic books. So do not be deceived. I give you this as food for thought. I'm not coming in and saying this happened. But what I am pointing out is that history has proven this once upon a time was a tradition. So let's not close our eyes to that fact. Jesus clapping together the palm of his hands called to the sparrows and said fly away. And they did. Anything Yahshua commands will come to pass. Why? Because he's God. Very simple. Verse 10. The Jews seeing this were astonished and went away and told their chief persons what a strange miracle they had seen wrought by Jesus. Strange, foreign, unbeknownst to them. The Jew. <laughs> and there is a difference between Hebrew and Jew. Even if you don't want to believe that the Jews are the children of the devil, we must believe at least that they are differentiated out from the other 11 tribes. But nevertheless, back to the Syriac Infancy Gospel. And back to chapter 15, where we left off. Notice that at the beginning of chapter 15, 
This is technically plagiarized and expanded upon from Infancy 2, where I just took you. The only major difference is the fact that the author of Infancy 1 dropped the fact that they were by the riverside. That's not mentioned. There is a difference of two years between the ages. In Infancy 2, Yahshua happens to be five. In Infancy 1 here, he happens to be seven. So we could logically deduct that this was not a new thing, nor was it a single event for Yahshua to do this. And granted, like any other normal boy, this part at least seems to make sense. But what about the second half of chapter 15? What about dealing with dye and merchandise, which is something that the Jew usually flocks to? Well, let's investigate, beginning in verse 8. The text says, On a certain day also, when the Lord Jesus was playing with the boys and running around, he passed by a dyer shop whose name was Salem. What does Salem mean? Salem in Hebrew, at least, means peace. Peace, perfect and or complete peace. So we could say that this dyer who owned the shop, his name was Peace, at least being translated. But it was Salem. And verse 9 continues by saying, There were in his shop many pieces of cloth belonging to the people of that city. What city? Bethlehem. Where this account is taking place. Which they designed to dye of several colors. Then, the Lord Jesus going into the dyer's shop took all the clothes and threw them into the furnace. Right about here, your natural man could come in and show you that Yahshua was a troublemaker, right? Because after all, here's a dyer. He works in cloth in the city of Bethlehem. And Yahshua, being a delinquent, right, goes and he sees all this man's livelihood. All the cloth of the residents of Bethlehem. And all the orders lined up. These needing to be dyed purple. These needing to be dyed red, etc., But what does Yahshua do? He comes and he takes them and he throws them in a furnace. Bad transliteration, dear kinsfolk. Bad transliteration. Because the irony is, is that's not what's being said here at all. And if we continue reading, the text will bear that out itself. When Salem came home and saw the clothes spoiled, he began to make a great noise and to chide the Lord Jesus, saying, What hast thou done to me, O thou son of Mary? Thou hast injured both me and my neighbors. They all desired their claws of proper color. But thou hast come and spoiled them all. So we see that it's not technically a furnace. It is Yahshua going and throwing them all within a dye pit. Unfortunately transliterated as a furnace here. But whether it was a fireplace or not, Yahshua can set crooked and set back straight, right? And that is what the author wants you to understand here. And I'm going to prove to you momentarily that in Infancy 2, this narrative between verses 8 and the end of the chapter was taken from a fragment and expanded upon. So naturally, Salem comes home. He lived within a shop. And he became upset with the young Lord Jesus Christ. And rightfully so, that was his livelihood. According to Mosaic law, if you stole a man's horse or his hammer and hindered him from making a living, you could be put to death and or hung, 
even up to a hundred years ago here in America. This is a grievous thing. Understand that, that Yahshua is doing. This isn't coming in and picking a piece of corn or an apple on the Sabbath day. This is coming in and coming dangerously close to costing a man his substance. Therefore, when Salem comes home, he sees the clothes all spoiled, meaning they're all dyed the same exact color. And he began to make a great noise and chide Yahshua, and rightfully so. Because this, my friend, was what we consider delinquency. Something that a troubled child would do. But there is a reason for this. Yeshua was guileless. There was no deceit within him. We must understand that. For him to be guileless means he never told a lie. He never pulled a one-trick pony. He didn't come in and tell people what they wanted to hear. Rather, he would only tell people the truth. And ultimately, that's what ended up costing him his life. So how does Yeshua respond to all of this? The answer is found in verse 13. The Lord Jesus replied, I will change the color of every cloth to what color thou desireth. Thank you for listening to the Covenant People's Ministry broadcast. If you have enjoyed hearing the message of the gospel and would like to be a part of our fellowship or receive quarterly newsletters where you can order Pastor Visser's CD sermons, be sure to write to us at CPM Post Office Box 256 Brooks, Georgia, 30205. You can also visit us on the web at covenantpeoplesministry.net, where our extensive audio section features numerous broadcasts, or you can easily listen to Pastor Visser by Godcast through your mobile audio device. Our sermons and videos are made possible by your tithes and offerings. If you wish to support this ministry, make checks or money orders payable to Covenant People's Ministry. Your donations help us to reach the lost sheep of the house of Israel, wherever they may be found. Remember that Jesus Christ is our all, and is in all that have been renewed in His Holy Spirit. So we hope that you will allow Him to lead your life and help to build His church, so that when He returns, you will find faith upon this earth. We urge you to be a living example of Christian faith and apply His words to your lives. It has been a pleasure to have you with us, and now we will return to Pastor Visser's Bible study message. Point one, they were not burned. Thus, this furnace was actually just a boiling kettle where the dyers made their dye. Understand that dye making was learned in Egypt by the Israelites, the Hebrews, you and I. We learned this in Egypt, and you can confirm that in Exodus chapter 26, verse 1, or also Exodus chapter 28, verses 5 through 8. The Israelites of old learned how to dye cloth from the Egyptians so much that they carried it over into the New Testament. So you can read in Acts chapter 6 verse 14 a confirmation of that. That dyeing was a trait that we learned at the hands of the Egyptians. And like most Judeans, quote unquote, or the Jews we could just say, they would come in and they would flock to merchandise. Remember that. There is no new thing under the sun. And in verse 13, Yahshua says, I'll change the color back to everyone that you desire. Verse 14. And then, he presently began to take the cloth out of the furnace. And they were all dyed of those same colors, which the dyer desired. And when the Jews saw this surprising miracle, they praised God. Notice there is a differentiation here between Hebrew and Jew. 
Notice also that Salem's racial background is not given. We know living in the land of Judea does not necessarily denote he's an Israelite or a Hebrew. Could have been an Edomite. But the text says he was a Jew. The text also says that Yahshua was a Hebrew. Very different. So we could just say this. <laughs> that when a Jew sees prophet, that when a Jew is able to come in and make money off of something, then, and only then, will they praise God because their God is what? Money. When you look at it, dear kinsfolk, Salem attacked and chided Yahshua. And rightfully so, one would say, because Yahshua hit him in the pocketbook. Therefore, when we read here in verse 15, in chapter 15, that the Jews saw this surprising miracle, they praised God. Oh yeah, indeed. Perhaps they would praise God if they're able to make more money. If their living and or their business was spared by young Yahshua. And just like a Jew, they'll seemingly forget in the process that it was Yahshua who caused the conflict in the first place. So don't be one of those proverbial lennies, dear kinsfolk. Like in Mice of Men. Don't let George throw you in the river and then when George jumps in and pulls you out, you're grateful to him. Perhaps that's a study for another day. But remember, that dye-making is a legit craft. I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with working with cloth and fabric or even dying. But, this text differentiates out Yahshua, the Lord Jesus, from the Jews. So, continuing on. In chapter 16, in the Syriac Infancy Gospel, chapter 1, we read, And Joseph, wheresoever he went in the city, took the Lord Jesus with him, where he was sent for to work, to make gates, or milk pails, or sieves, or boxes. The Lord Jesus was with him wherever he went. Now, there is much history in this one verse. And I do not want you to lose sight of how parts of this actually align with canon. Turn with me, if you will, to the Gospel according to Matthew. Beginning in verse 53, we read, It came to pass that when Jesus had finished these parables, he departed thence. And when he was coming to his own country, he taught them in their synagogue, insomuch that they were astonished and said, Whence hath this man this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And his brethren, James and Joses, and Simon, and Judas, and his sisters, are they not all with us? Whence then hath this man all these things? And they were offended in him, but Jesus said unto them, pay close attention, a prophet is not without honor, save in his own country, and in his own house. How true that is, faithful Christians, because I have a hundred thousand listeners a week, and maybe two supporters. Two tithers. My own parents don't even believe in this message because why? A prophet has no honor. Yahshua says a prophet is not without honor, save in his own country and in his own house. The same exact analogy. Now, Yahshua to you can be one of two things. And understand this in dealing with the carpenter's son. If you believe Yahshua is the carpenter's son, then you believe Joseph is his father and not Yahweh God. 
Therefore, it is very easy for you to come in and say, well, Jesus Christ is a Jew. Why? Because Joseph was considered a Judean, unlike Mary, Jesus' natural birth mother. Mary was of the tribe of Levi, meaning she was an Israelite, not of the tribe of Judah. Therefore, to the Christian who believes Jesus is the Son of God, Joseph does not come into play at all. We understand that Yahweh is Yahshua's father. Just as we understand that Yahweh is our father and not that man down the road or that man who's passed on. But if you believe that Joseph is Jesus' father, you're going to come in and say something stupid like this. Was not this the carpenter's son? No. Yahshua was not Joseph's son in any way, shape, or form. Not even by way of tribe. It's Mary's son. And Yahweh's son. And notice also that his brothers are named here. And we covered that in the segment before this. His brothers are named James, Joses, Simon, and Judas. But yet when Judas Iscariot, or Judas the Lesser, came in, in the chapter before that one, notice that James and Joses were playing with Yahshua. Does that prove validity here? Not necessarily. But me going here to Matthew proves that there was a sentiment in the minds of the people to downplay and limit Yahshua so much so (laughs) that when his miracles came to pass, that when he was proven correct by the world and time, just like myself, they would come in and deny by saying, well, he's just a carpenter's son. He's just a sinner. My point with all of this is those that think they know your sins will never accept what you have to say because they're always looking for an escape clause to come in and not obey what you say. Thank God Yahweh's judgment is different because a majority of Christians could come in and say, I'm not going to listen to Paul. After all, he consented to the death of Stephen, right? (laughs) So, point one, before we even look at what Yahshua did here in helping his stepfather Joseph. Turn with me also to Mark chapter 6. Beginning in verse 2. When the Sabbath day was come, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many hearing him were astonished, saying, From whence hath this man these things? And what wisdom is this which is given unto him, that even such mighty works are wrought by his hands? Some manuscripts say performed instead of wrought. And that actually is a better reading. Because the question is, what wisdom is this that is given unto him? That even such mighty works are performed by his hands. Pay close attention, verse 3 in Mark 6. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joses and of Judah, and Simon, that's Peter, and are not his sisters here with us? And they were offended at him. Pay close attention to what Yahshua says. But Jesus said unto them, A prophet is not without honor, but in his own country, and among his own kin, and among his own house. What we just covered there in Mark, not only proves that Joseph was a carpenter, but that Yahshua followed in his steps, becoming a carpenter himself, right? The first time, that is in Matthew, they say, is this not the carpenter's son? But in Mark, they say, is this not the carpenter? So, my point is, is when we're looking at this, and we understand that Yahshua traveled intimately with Joseph, this might be why 
Right here, what we're covering in chapter 16. Because Joseph, wheresoever he went in the city of Bethlehem, took Yahshua with him. And not only was he sent to do all sorts of work like make gates, but also milk pails, sieves, boxes. And the Lord Jesus went with him, wheresoever he went. Verse 2. And as often as Joseph had anything in his work to make longer or shorter, or wider or narrower, the Lord Jesus would stretch his hands towards it. And presently, it became as Joseph would have it. Now I want to point out, before we actually get to it, that almost every Gnostic book, and those that are seemingly unrelated, all say that Joseph was not a very good carpenter. Now, in canon, however, that's not the case. It doesn't come in and say anything other than the fact that carpentry was Joseph's trade. But, almost every Gnostic and pseudepigraphal or apocryphal book say that Joseph was not a very good carpenter. Whether that's true or not, we do not know. But I want you to bear that in mind because it seems here that Joseph would come, he would cut a board too short. Yahshua would come and he'd pull it to the proper length. Or... He would cut it too narrow. And Yahshua would, of course, widen that board because he was able to do miracles. Now this, of course, is going to be very, very important because here in a moment, the king of Jerusalem is going to commission Joseph to build him a throne. So, as often as Joseph had anything in his work to make longer or shorter or wider or narrower, Jesus would do it. Now, a modern carpenter knows you measure twice, you cut once. You're very, very careful with your materials and your stock. But Joseph, not being a very skilled tradesman, would obviously have taken Yahshua along with him. And chapter 16 explains why. Because in this account, Yahshua saves Joseph shorts. Verse 3. And presently it became as Joseph would have it. So that he'd have no need to finish anything with his own hands. For he was not very skillful at his carpenter's trade. Let's read that one more time. Joseph, the stepfather of Yahshua, was not very skillful at his carpenter's trade. I'm focusing on that naturally because we already went to the Gospel of Mark and Luke, right? Thus, when they come in and they deny Yahshua as a prophet, as a teacher, and say, is this not the carpenter's son? It should be even more offensive now, when you realize that Joseph wasn't the greatest carpenter in Bethlehem. Rather, he was just a simple man like you and I, trying to make ends meet. And thank God he would have Yahshua, because Agrippa enters the picture here momentarily. In fact, let's go there now. Beginning in verse 5 of chapter 16 in First Infancy. On a certain time, the king of Jerusalem sent for him and said, I would have thee make me a throne of the same dimensions with that place in the which I commonly sit. Now understand as we look at this, that the Herodians were disbanded about 6 BC. Thus, during the time of Yahshua, there were Herodian kings, but no specific king to be named. Thus, I bring this up because this king of Jerusalem, as mentioned here, could either be one of two kings. Agrippa the first or Agrippa the second. 
And if you research this, you'll be able to understand that the king of Jerusalem, at least when Yahshua was between 7 and 14 years old, would have likely been Agrippa 1 or 2. But they, of course, had to answer to a higher power. So the Herodians lost their power at 6 BC. They allowed particular Herodian kings to still rule over Jerusalem. But all of them answered to Rome in the form of Pilate. Make sense? So, on a certain time, either Agrippa I or Agrippa II, the king of Jerusalem, sent for Joseph and said, I would have thee make me a throne of the same dimensions with that place in which I commonly sit. You understand what's being said here? Agrippa is saying, I want a throne. And I want my throne to be exactly the same size as my current throne. Where I sit every single day and rule Jerusalem and Judea. Now that, any carpenter would know, would be a dream job. Very, very simple to do, especially when you have your template right there with all the dimensions, right? But Joseph messes up being a natural man. What happens? Verse 6. Joseph obeyed and forthwith began the work and continued two years in the king's palace before he finished it. And when he came to fix it in its place, he found it wanted two spans on each side of the appointed measure. Too narrow, dear kinsfolk. It's too slim for Agrippa to sit within. How this happened, one does not know. Because it would have been easy to write down the dimensions, even in cubits. But again... The author of Infancy 1 wants you to understand that Joseph was not a very skilled carpenter, right? Verse 4, this is what happens. Because he wasn't a very skilled carpenter, he works for two years building this throne for the king. And then, on the day that it came to put it in, to quote-unquote fix it in its place, he found it wanted two spans on each side, meaning Agrippa couldn't sit down within it. Therefore, Joseph, the stepfather of Jesus Christ, is in a bit of hot water, right? Verse 8 proves that. Which, when the king saw, he was very angry with Joseph. And rightfully so, when you think two years Joseph was being paid, at least, probably a monthly or a bi-weekly wage, to work on this throne. This was a huge project, a throne after all, and it would have been worth it to the king to pay a skilled craftsman for two years to build him a nice throne, right? Because, after all, every king in the Old Testament, and even now, wants to have greater and better than the other kings. Therefore, Agrippa wanted the greatest throne there was. He was upgrading his current throne. But yet, when Joseph completed the project and went to put it within the king's chambers, it's too narrow. And Agrippa got upset, became very angry with Joseph. Next verse. And Joseph, afraid of the king's anger, went to bed without a supper, taking not anything to eat. Now this is not Joseph throwing a temper tantrum, but to go to bed without dinner denotes that he was lamentuous. He was lamenting, and naturally so, because after two years, I'm sure Joseph felt like a failure. No one sets out to fail, dear kinsfolk, and I'm sure as Joseph was building this, he believed it was the greatest thing to which the king of Jerusalem would bestow great honor upon Joseph, even giving him a permanent position within the castle, right? But that's not what happened. So Joseph, afraid of the king's anger, he goes to bed without anything to eat, not taking anything. 
because he was upset. He did not know if he would be put to death. He did not know if he would have to pay a ransom to the king. Then, in verse 10, we read, The Lord Jesus asked him, What are you afraid of? Question. What are you afraid of? That's such a timeless question, dear kinsfolk. I ask you, now, in this current era, what are you afraid of when the whole duty of man is to fear God and keep His commandments? When you are instructed in the New Testament to fear not He who can harm your body, but He who can destroy your soul. In short, you're instructed to fear no man, but Joseph did, and rightfully so. Even us in CI who know not to fear any man when we're in a bit of hot water and being drugged before the courts of men, guess what? We're going to lament too. No matter how pious or chaste you are. Because it's an upsetting thing and it affects the entire family. So much so that even Jesus recognized something was wrong. Joseph didn't eat dinner. Joseph was upset. He was fearful. He could have been put to death for all intents and purposes, right? So Yeshua comes and he says, What are you afraid of? Verse 11 says, Joseph replied, Because I have lost my labor in the work I have been about these two years. Because I've lost two years worth of work. Not only that, because I messed up, now I will most likely retroactively have to pay back everything the king paid me because I did not fulfill my end of the contract. Yahshua was a boy. Joseph was a man. Yahshua asking this question was showing his innocence at this age. What's wrong? He should have understood, right? But yet he was still human. He was still a man. Joseph replied, because I've lost two years worth of work. Verse 12. Jesus said unto him, fear not. Stopping right there. Don't fear. Fear not. Fear no man. Fear only Yahweh God. Remember that. That is very, very important because the enemy controls you through fear. And if you turn on the media, you will see everything from anthrax scares to killer bees to so much worse. You must inoculate and vaccinate and do all of these things because after all, the great big boogeyman's going to get you, right? Fear is what it is, dear kinsfolk. Fear is how the Jew controls you. And more than just fear when it pertains to your health, the fear of kicking against the pricks and being different. Yeshua was different. So much so that when he started to do miracles, when he started to preach parables, they, the residents of Bethlehem, would come in and say, Isn't this the carpenter's son? (laughs) No, it was Yahweh God's son. And we're going to see that in a moment. Jesus' advice to Joseph in verse 12 is, Fear not, neither be cast down. He says, Do thou lay hold on one side of the throne, and I will the other, and we will bring it to its just dimensions. Just in this passage means proper. Yahshua is saying, okay, the throne is a little narrow. Agrippa is wroth. But I have a simple answer for you. I'll grab one end. You grab the other. And we'll pull it to its proper dimensions. Therefore, the king can sit within it. What happens? Verse 14. When Joseph had done as the Lord Jesus said, and each of them had with strength drawn his side, The throne obeyed and was brought to the proper dimensions of the place. Proper dimensions, that which Agrippa desired. And not only that, so it aligned with the original throne that was being upgraded by the king. What does this denote? Well, naturally, Joseph would be paid in full. Secondly, the king would be grateful. 
Thirdly, their position as a family would be fully rooted and established within Bethlehem, right? This, perhaps, would be why Joseph was so afraid. Not so much that he messed up, but that they went through all of this, this plight into Egypt, escaping Herodians' band, to come back to be commissioned by the king of Jerusalem, and then have the king himself become upset with you. And so, notice, when Joseph had done as the Lord Jesus said, it came to pass. Each and every one of us must follow suit. Whether you fancy yourself the stepchild of God or not, if you obey Yahshua, it will come to pass. That is why verse 14 proves, when, not before, not after, but only when Joseph had done as Yahshua said, and each of them, had with their own strength drew the two sides apart. Then what happens? The throne obeyed and was brought to the proper dimensions of the place. Which miracle, when they who stood by saw, they were astonished and praised God. Are you starting to notice a trend yet, dear friends? Because every time a miracle happens, it is for not only the benefit of he who is sick and made whole, but for those round about to witness that miracle, because they will in turn turn around and rejoice Yahweh God. That is, if they're astonished, not like the Jew, coming in and trying to get Yahshua Messiah in a form of trouble. So, this miracle, when they who stood by, those would be the Israelites, for the most part, but every resident, the multitude, within the land of Judea, and more specifically, within Bethlehem, and the outskirts of that city. When they saw it, they praised God. Because they were astonished. Do you think for a moment this is why in the New Testament we are commanded to lay hands on one another? That miracles still do exist? Do you think the fact that maybe, the fact that we do not have so many miracles transpiring today is directly attributed to our lack of faith as a nation? Well, I believe it is. Because if we had the faith the size of a mustard seed, we could do all of this and more. The point is, is we do not have the faith that is required. Joseph obviously did not have the faith that was required. Now, this is not talking down on Joseph. Joseph is a type of you and I, an Israelite. Meaning that even if we are close to Yahweh God, even if we have received visitation from angels, as Joseph did Gabriel, we still run the risk of fearing man. We still run that risk because man is an authority down here, or so they think so. So every white nationalist, every Christian identist, when they get in hot water, will be filled with fear. My advice is this. Don't fear. Have faith. Especially if you did nothing wrong. You will be vindicated. You will be justified. That was the story of Yahshua. And so... One final point, and we will have concluded chapter 16. That is verse 16. The throne was made in the same wood, which was in being in Solomon's time. Namely, wood adorned with various shapes and figures. This is what Joseph was commissioned by Agrippa to do when dealing with his throne. Not only did he build the throne and build it too narrow and Yahshua jump in to bail him out and make it wide again, but the author wants you to understand that the throne was made in the same wood 
which was in at the times of Solomon. <laughs> it was fashionable back then, right? The same wood which was in being in Solomon's time, namely, wood adorned with various shapes and figures. Now with that, we will complete the Syriac Infancy Gospel, at least for today, and we'll pick it back up next time. But turn with me, in conclusion, to 1 Kings chapter 6. And I'm going to prove to you what it was that Joseph actually did for King Agrippa in this narrative. Because notice, it ends on that note. It simply says, well, he made the throne much after the same exact manner as Solomon did. But it says also, he used the same exact wood that Solomon used. So turn to 1 Kings chapter 6, beginning in verse 20. Solomon overlaid the house within with pure gold. And he made a partition by the chains of gold before the oracle. And he overlaid it with gold. And the whole house he overlaid with gold until he had finished all the house. Also, the whole altar that was by the oracle he overlaid with God. And within the oracle he made two cherubims of olive tree, each ten cubits high. And five cubits was the one wing of the cherub, and five cubits the other wing of the cherub. From the uttermost part of the one wing to the uttermost part of the other were ten cubits. And the other cherub was ten cubits. Both of the cherubims were one measure and one side. And he set the cherubims within the inner house, and they stretched forth the wings of the cherubims, so that the wing of one touched the one wall, etc. You know this account. But here it is, in 1 Kings chapter 6, where we are given the types of wood that are used. Right here, an olive tree, olive wood. And not only that, it gives you an idea of some of the carvings that Joseph put within Agrippa's throne. They would have naturally, if they were after the manner of Solomon's temple, would have been cherubims. Because cherubims lined all the walls, all the floor, all the ceiling, and every bit of Solomon's temple. You ever stop to think why that is? Why cherubs and or, a polite way of saying angels, were so important to the building of Solomon's temple, but yet there still exist ignoramuses who want to come in and tell you, you know what, there's no such thing as angels. Angels don't have wings. I just read it to you. I just proved to you angels have wings. Beware of fools who want to tell you something that is not found within the Word of God. And so, until next time, dear friends, this is Pastor Visser from Brooks, Georgia, and the Covenant People's Church, wishing you and your entire family great studies, war for Christ. Amen. Covenant People's Ministry! Thank you for listening to this message. We hope that you have enjoyed studying with us. Remember the words that Christ has given. That wherever two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. We hope that you will gather together with us at the online ministry's website, which is covenantpeoplesministry.com, and share your Christian testimonies or ask questions and enjoy biblical fellowship. You can also order CDs of Pastor Visser's Bible Studies and enjoy many other Christian resources through the church's website or write to Covenant People's Ministry, Post Office Box 256, Brooks, Georgia, 30205. We thank you for your prayers and offerings and pray that all of you have been touched by these messages and continue to spread the word of the gospel with your friends and family. Thanks again and may the love of Christ abide in you and yours forever and ever.
Amen.